0: Hey, we are in Genesis chapter 3 tonight. We've been reading through or working through this series called the Meta-Narrative, kind of the big picture idea of of Scripture. And when, when students oftentimes read the Bible, they're like really confused. They're like, there's talking snakes, and there's people rising from the dead, and there's these prophets that are proclaiming judgment, and like, I don't understand how to connect all of these things together. And so... So oftentimes when we talk about scripture, we, we talk about all of these different books and there's 40 different authors or so and there's about 100 or 1,500 years that we're talking about in different cultures and different languages and different situations. And like, how do all of these things work together? And yet, actually, when we look at scripture, we understand there's actually this, this kind of what we call this meta-narrative. There is this large picture conversation about who God is and how he's connecting to us as humanity. And so we're talking through the, the creation of man. Last week we had Jen sharing about the fall of mankind. And this and tonight we're talking about uh, the fall. We had creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. and And so my wife's doing next week, but right now we are in Genesis chapter three and we're looking at how all of these books, all of these authors, all of these narratives interconnect and weave together this beautiful story of God's relationship with humanity. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, where we're going to start tonight, but it says in verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, Uh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Real, real nice guy, right? Just throw the woman on the bus there. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpents, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust All the days of your life, and you will put enmity between you, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until the return of the ground until you return to the ground since from it you were taken for dust you are and dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I remember going when I first started college, I remember going to the University of Idaho and the first weekend before school even started being being thrown into this community where I, I saw more alcohol, I think, that first weekend than I'd ever seen in my entire life. And and everybody was just kind of going crazy and they were, you know, they were getting crazy, super wasted and, and all over, just doing all kinds of wild stuff. And I just felt really lonely actually at that time. I just felt like, man, I, like what am I doing here and do I really belong? And, and wrestling with this sense of like, it would just be so much easier to kind of go along with the crowd and join in on what they're about and what they're doing. I remember a, a girl coming up to me one time and saying, Nate, any any place, anything, you just give me a call. And that kind of temptation and challenge for a young man in college being like, what do I do with that? And I remember all these guys around me, they were, they were just kind of like, hey, this is life. This is living life to the fullest. This is what life's about. This is, you know, you gotta experience things. And, and yet watching at the same time their lives crumbling as a result of their choices and the challenges and the difficulties that their lives faced as a result of the way that they were living. The story of the garden is not an obscure, abstract, and disconnected tale from our own. It is our story. The story of the garden is a story of our lives, of what it is like to be human and why we feel like we're living with paradise lost. Why what the world offers feels right but leaves our eyes open and our hearts despairing as a result. Why we see the world and feel like good is harder than it should be. And the chaos is the natural order of things. The garden story is not a fiction from ancient antiquity. It is our own story. It's the real story of our lives. But it also tells us the path to redemption, restoration, and something a whole lot more. I remember... Well, let me say this, when we start talking about Genesis 3, sometimes the question that comes up for students oftentimes is like, okay, are we talking like, is this a literal story? Like, we're talking about the Bible. Is this a literal narrative? Is this a figurative? Is this a metaphor? And and I just kind of like deal with like a little bit of the elephant in the conversation before we move on to anything else. But But the answer is, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's... I know that there's people who have a very high view of scripture who believe that not only is the Bible written by man about God, but that it's written about God by God, that God helps humanity. He helped influence and direct and inspire them. It's the word of God that we believe that God gave us what we needed to know about our humanity and our story through the Bible. But whether or not this is literal or figurative, I was talking with, with one of the guys uh, even last night about this, and and he was like, I just don't know what to do with you know Genesis and some of these passages, and, and we were talking through some of that, and you know at the end of the day, whether it's literal or metaphor doesn't particularly matter. It's something that God said, hey, this is going to help you understand your narrative. Now I don't have a hard t- I don't have a hard time believing that the story of Genesis three is a literal story. I don't personally have a hard time with that because. I think that all of physicality is a metaphor. You know, think about think about this. God is a spiritual being. Why would He create a, a physical universe? He's not a physical being. Not until Jesus, right? Like He's why why did He create a physical world? But if you're going to create a whole bunch of beings in your image, which is what Genesis, the start of Genesis, tells us, He made them in His image. If He was going to do that, but He was going to give them the opportunity to walk away, and you're not really sure, like you know, what they're always going to do. Like, or if you don't, if you're gonna give them that choice of they're gonna walk away or follow you, like, how are you helping them learn about you and experience you and learn what it's like to not be near to you? And how do you help them textilely connect to who you are? Well, the physical world is all about helping us connect to the idea of God. I love the hard sciences. That's why I love physics and biology and studying the natural order, because to me, I see it and I see so many aspects of who God is that I learn about through the journey of the physical world. So I don't have a hard time believing that Genesis three happens, whether it's metaphor or literal, I, I don't really have a hard time with it. I don't have a hard time believing that marriage is a metaphor for Christ and the church like Ephesians 5 would say. I don't, believe, I don't have a hard time believing that when Jesus rose from the dead that he ascended into the clouds, not because James Webb Telescope is gonna eventually find heaven up there somewhere, but because it was a living metaphor to help us connect to the divine in what was going on that we wouldn't understand without the physicality to help. And so whether it was literal or not, it was still a metaphor. Even if it was literal, it was a physical metaphor. If it was just a metaphor of scripture, then that's fine. But either case... It is a literal narrative of our own lives and how we connect with God in our lives. And so, something, one of the ways I wanted to kind of break this down is just to kind of look at the different characters in our story tonight. And the first one is the snake. Kind of interesting character here. But the snake in our story, he changed our reality from one with God to one without him. It's interesting, God was walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. He was with humanity in the garden. They lived in paradise where biology and humanity experienced unity, really different than oftentimes in our world. The physical and the spiritual were in a symbiotic relationship with each other. That through God's order, that his nature, his design, his creativity was expressed in the garden. And that through that, humanity was experiencing this relationship with their God and their creator. But the world outside of it, the world outside was without that order. In fact, that was part of what God called Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 to do, is to advance the garden. The problem is, is they left the, gar- they left the garden. They went into the world without the garden. They were meant to go into the world with the garden. But the world outside of them, there was all kinds of other things that began to spring up. We actually see in in that passage here in Genesis 3, God doesn't actually curse the earth. It's kinda interesting. He says, curses the earth because of you. Like this is the natural consequence of you advancing into the world without the garden with you. And so they go into this biology, they go into this world without this cell that was supposed to be the place where heaven and earth met, where the kingdom of God experienced the world, the physical world. And all kinds of potentials, all kinds of realities began to become part of their narrative as a result. They began to experience death and suffering and disease. And things decay became normal. Entropy became the normal expression of, of their reality. I, if you've been around me long enough, I love, I love science stuff. It's really interesting to me. But, but I've always found, to Genesis 3, a, a strong parallel with what they've learned in the last 100 years with quantum mechanics. And if you know anything about like double slit tests, um, or sometimes more popularized uh, as Schrodinger's cat, if you ever heard that. The idea that Schrodinger's cat, the question is, is it alive or dead? And the answer in the quantum world is it's, it's both are true until you open the lid, until Schrodinger opens the lid and one of them becomes true. It's based on this test that they discovered in the 1920s where double-slit test where they found that an electron acts out, its reality expresses every potential until something observes it. And it was acting like mini-electrons and physicists were like, what in the world is going on? So they put an observer, they put like a sensor on the test and all of a sudden it collapsed into one electron. And, and it was actually before it was acting, it was interacting with each other and it was doing all this weird stuff and then all of a sudden it collapsed. Why? Because not to overly simplify a very complex concept and, and even to this day physicists are throwing out all kinds of theories about why this works and how it works. But to oversimplify, essentially as soon as an observer sees that electron, it forces the electron to obey the laws of The universe and our universe says it can only act as one electron so it collapses into one but before that all kinds of potentials are being observed well okay what does that have to do with the garden and a snake and genesis 3 what it has to do with is this idea that reality what they did is they basically said hey god we don't want you to observe us anymore The garden was this place where God's order, his beauty, his nature, his creative force, his laws were being observed in that reality. And they left that place and all of a sudden all kinds of other potentials became their realities, all kinds of other things that were never meant to be part of their human narrative became part of the human story. I think of like the story in Mark chapter five where this woman of bleeding, she was, she I had been bleeding for 12 years and doctors at that time didn't have a cure, didn't know what to do for her, didn't have an answer for her. And the Bible says that she touched the hem of Jesus's garment and she just thought, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'd be healed. And Jesus doesn't even know what happened. He's like looking around like, what just happened? Somebody touched me. There's a whole crowd around him and they're like, lots of people are like, you know, they're all crowded around you. He's like, no, power left me. Because in that moment, there's a famous commentator called GK Chesterton and or no Morgan. Sorry, Morgan. But he he both are good. But Morgan is a commentator and he, he makes this comment. He says, Jesus in the Levitical law given to Moses, the Levitical law, her her uncleanliness should have made Jesus unclean. He should have not been able to go to temple. He should not have been able to do anything the rest of that day. But in that moment, because that was the natural order of things, entropy, your your disease, your sickness, your suffering, your thing is affecting my peace, my security, my comfort, my world. But in the kingdom of God, all of a sudden the kingdom of God observes her quite literally in that moment. And all of a sudden her reality collapses into his reality. And in his reality, in his laws, where his world exists, her suffering is, is not allowed, that her sickness is not permitted, that her healing is the reality that God gives. And in that moment, Morgan makes a comment, she, he never touched an unclean woman. The old way of thinking was that uncleanliness made uncleanliness, but in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God invaded her reality and changed it. And so here's here's this idea, and in the garden, here's the snake, and he tempts Adam and Eve, and, and because of that, they basically are cast out of the garden, and all kinds of realities are expressed or experienced as a result. And so the question is, and sometimes in our own lives, is like, okay, how are you being observed by God? How are you letting God observe you? Because all kinds of things start to happen in our lives when we don't let him in, when we don't let him him begin to observe us and let his kingdom transform us and let his influence dictate to us our reality the bible is a story of god inviting us into a reality transformed by his presence but a story where our humanity is fighting our abiding in his garden and so what's winning are you leaving the garden for the sake of the temptations around you Or are you learning to let his abiding presence in your life transform your reality as a result? And this, this is what we call the fall. Humanity experiencing reality without experiencing God and the consequences of what happened. And so Adam and Eve, here we have Adam and Eve, kind of the second characters we want to look at here tonight. And Adam and Eve experienced shame and tried to fix it themselves. So it's kind of interesting Adam realizes, like, oh, we're naked, and and he's ashamed. It's kind of like freshman boys at men's advance, right? Like, oh, what? But here's these, yeah. <laughs> but, but he's, and then the seniors are naked and unashamed. So they're back in the garden. Okay, but they realized, like, here they are. They're, like, in this situation, and they realized, like, man, we... we're we're naked and they're full of shame as a result of it. Because God comes in and God says, hey, did you eat from that tree? I told you not to eat from that tree. And oftentimes people might say things like, hey, how can God say obey me? Like that seems so arbitrary. Christianity is full of all these arbitrary rules and commands and I think they're just kind of outdated and antiquated. But if you think about it, it makes sense. God had to give humanity an out because paradise forced upon you is not paradise at all. God is saying, hey, if you're gonna be in the garden, you have to choose to be in here. So I have to give you an option, I have to give you an out. And so he gives them an out. If you think about it, every relationship has rules to it. Every relationship has rules to it. And and God's commands are just God saying, hey, here's, here's the rules of my relationship with you, right? Like, if you're, if you're gonna be friends with me, our friendship is not based on you obeying rules, but there are rules to our friendship. It's like, hey, don't hit on my wife. Don't steal from me if you're over at my house. Be kind to my kids, right? There are rules to this. And, and it's not because that is the definition of friendship, but it is a prerequisite to allow for friendship to exist. I remember when we were in Russia, and we were starting the Chi Alpha over there in Russia, and we had this girl on staff with us, uh, Lauren. And Lauren Chester, she was this great girl, and she was living with Lindsay and I um, in, this, in this little tiny apartment up there uh, near the university. But she was allergic to peanut butter, or peanuts. So... I, on the other hand, have survived to my 40-year-old age because of PB&Js. And, you know, like, and so I'm just like, this is, this is not going to work. I don't know. I'm going to kill her. I am, this is, but we had these strict rules, right? Like, hey, Nate, you know, you have your jelly. I have my own. If you, you know, never put the peanut butter, you know, never put the knife in the peanut butter jar first and then put it on anything else because that could, like, you know, send me to the hospital. And, and if I don't obey those rules, not only am I potentially harming her, but I'm, I'm breaking the friendship. There's something that I'm damaging. I'm saying, hey, I didn't care enough to, to consider your, your, your needs, and your wants, and your priorities. I, w- I didn't care enough, and so, so, if I, if I, so I was always really careful. I was always, you know, everything was good, if she survived Russia, it was great. But, she survived living in a house with, uh, I was always eating peanut butter. It worked for Russia, Russia doesn't have very much peanut butter, but still, there was this understanding, right? Like, every relationship has rules to it. And, and so, we, every relationship restricts you Real relationships restrict you. And so it, it's looking at God saying here, like, hey, if you're gonna follow me, there's, there's certain rules to this. If we're gonna hang out together, if we're gonna be in the garden, if we're gonna live together, there's certain rules to that. And that's just natural to every relationship. But Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to break with that. Their selfishness created a divide with God because they said, hey, we wanna do things without you. Like a relationship that wants to cheat on you to go check out what they're missing somewhere else. And all of a sudden they realized what they had done and they felt shame as a result. And sometimes people though say, well I just don't want God, right? I just don't care. I don't need to feel shame if I don't want God. But you know, that, that may be sort of true and yet at the same time it doesn't, it's not quite far enough. Romans talks about our own consciousness acts as, as our own law as well. Is the rules of relationship that we realize we're breaking? I know this. I know this old pastor, this old preacher, who makes the comments, thinking about the judgment day with God, and he, and he makes this comment. So I, I feel like it's just going to be like God's going is is putting almost like a tape recorder around your neck, and throughout your life, every time that you have accused someone of something, and every time you judge someone for something, and every time you have you know held your said this is my standard and this is how. You know, this is what I don't like about this person or that person or that. He's like, this is your standard. He's just recording your standards. And so he's gonna read out your your own standards. And then he's gonna watch your life and see if you live up to your own standards. And guess what? Every one of us would fall short of that. Every one of us will fall short of our own standards. You don't need God's standards. I mean, now when you talk about an infinitely good God, I mean, how much more? You can't even live up to your own standards. You think you're gonna live up to God's? Like, you can't even do it yourself. And so here is, and here is God, and He's like, "Hey, yeah, you've broken this, the rules of relationship. You've broken from me. There's a divide here." I think it's interesting in our in our culture right now. You know, secular people, secular students, oftentimes there's sort of this feeling like, um, "Hey, Christians, you guys are just kind of living in this fantasy world." And I've I've mentioned this before, but I, I think it's so fascinating. Secular people always think like, oh, Christians, you're living in this fantasy world, there's snakes talking, and there's, you know, people rising from the dead, and there's all kinds of wacky stuff going on. Like, I don't know about all that. But what I always respond with that is like, you know, we live at least in our own reality. We are actually living in line with the reality. that We have a good God that loves us and is pursuing a relationship with us, and we're responding to him in our lives. You secular people, you can't even live in your own reality. You, mean, you say, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, okay, if you, have, if you believe that there is no God, then morality really is, is learning to live your life in reality, right? So it, if we don't say it this way, but if I walked off of a building, I am being immoral to the universe that has gravity, right? I am being immoral because I'm not living in that reality. I'm not living in line with the reality around me. And gravity exists and i'm gonna hurt myself or kill myself because i'm not living in that reality and so morality is living in reality well you can't live in your own reality you say why not it's like okay well if if reality i always think it's interesting the morality that secular people put on the christians like well like i'm gonna hit some hot topics why not like talk about abortion you know, in Christianity, we have a good reason to say like why abortion is wrong, but actually a secular person also has actually almost stronger reasons to believe that abortion is wrong. Because if, if morality is based on your reality, and reality is outside the garden, all you have kind of outside the garden is neo-Dewinian evolution, that's all there is. Well, then your whole purpose of existence is to advance the species to the next generation. You, you terminating a fetus is the greatest offense to your reality. I mean, birth control itself is a r- evil to you. LGBTQ, it's wrong to a secular worldview, to living in your reality. You want to talk about social justice? There is no social justice. It's the power of the strong overcoming the weak that is the greatest good. There is no social justice. Social justice is an evil. You can't even live in your reality. You can't live that way. And yet, that's what secular people, they like... They're like, well, you're you're just living in this fantasy world. I'm like, well, you're just not even living in your own reality. You're taking what you like about my fantasy world and shifting it for your own needs, but you can't even live in your own. And here is God, and he's saying, if you would just follow me, if you would just come near to me, I would so transform your reality. The garden story is a story of, yeah, there is a whole lot of chaos out in the world. We were meant to advance the garden into it, Instead, we went into the chaos and became part of it. And so Adam and Eve experienced shame because they suddenly realized they had paradise lost. They had rejected what God had always intended for them. Shame came from breaking the rules of relationship. Adam and Eve said, we don't want our reality to be shaped by our relationship with you. And so... Here they are, C.S. Lewis makes this comment in The Four of Loves, he says, relationships, friendships, they're always built on something external to the friendship. Friendship is always about something more than the friendship, which is why people who only want a friendship never get any. They're, all, they're always the most lonely people, or the people who just want a friend. The people, because friendship always demands to be about something else, even if it's, a, he says, an affinity for white mice. So, Europeans, I don't know, but, but, Here's the thing though, I I think I would take C.S. Lewis and i push him just a little further in that. It's like if friendship has to be about something more than just the friendship, then the more that that friendship is built upon something that is most fundamentally true about you, the more true that relationship becomes. The more authentic, the more meaningful, the more uh, it becomes a transforming act in your life. That's why soldiers talk about the band of brothers because when you're in the foxhole and I've never experienced it myself, but when you're standing next to a guy and you're saying, hey, you got my back, I've got yours, maybe we'll survive the day because the most fundamental thing about your existence in that moment is I want to survive. There's this deep intimacy that's created by that partnership, which is also why soldiers often, when they leave the army and leave the battlefields, walk away from each other as well because the thing that bound them together is no longer there to hold them past that moment. But when Christ is the center of our friendship, when Christ is the center of our lives, when I say, he is my Lord, and I'm learning to lean on you in the pursuit of Christ, that's why we talk about small group, guys. Like, I know many of you guys are small group leaders in here tonight, but that's why we talk about, small group is not a weekly meeting. We have to be really, really careful about defining it that way. Small group is not a weekly meeting. If you define it that way, then you're just defining it by a structure and an organization and a meeting. Small group is a community of people that are leaning on each other in the pursuit of Christ. And that means that whether or not they made it to that weekly meeting this week, they might be in your small group and you might have people who are coming to your weekly meeting that aren't in your small group because they're not learning yet to lean on each other. That's why it's more than just a Bible study, although the Bible needs to be part of the proclamation of the word, like that we're learning to like learn, hey, I need you and you need me and if we could if we could help each other, maybe we could get through college, maybe we could win the day, maybe we could live out this faith in a way that would draw us closer to our God, and become more human in the journey. And so here's here's God at the end here. And God calls them to confess their sin and create a path for them forward. It's really interesting, he asks them these questions that he knows the answers to, right? God's like, did you eat of that tree? Oh, you did? What? I'm shocked. Why did he ask them? Why did he ask a a question? If you're a God of the universe, yes, I know that you ate of the tree. Why is he asking them? I remember reading a book a few years ago where he was talking about attributes of Christians who are really pursuing God well and living out their faith well and growing in their faith actively. And they they had these like 15, 16 different attributes that they found were in these Christians' lives regularly. But one of them that they found was this sense of, of... intense vulnerability, authenticity, really confession on a regular basis with, with some other brothers or other sisters, that, that there was a sense of confession that came. And it wasn't just like, hey, this was one of the attributes of a Christian's life that was growing. They actually found this one was actually what you sometimes call a keystone habit. It's, it's a habit that has a disproportionate influence on everything else. It's why the military years ago arbitra- or anecdotally discovered that, hey, if we make soldiers wake up and make their beds in the morning, they're more likely to be disciplined all day. It's also why when you have a day off and you wake up at you know, noon and you're like lazy half the day, you feel groggy and lazy and lethargic the rest of the day because you didn't wake up setting the tone of your day. The way you wake up is the way you stay throughout the day, right? And so they found that this sense of confession, this sense of, Of surrender, that it was actually creating a stronger sense of connection to one another and a stronger sense of connection to their God than anything else in the other attributes. In fact, it created many of the other attributes. It created stronger brotherhood because you were vulnerable, you were real, you were actually leaning on each other. It created community, it created this sense of purpose, it created a sense of holiness in your life because you weren't enslaved by the shame of your life, right? Like, you know, people are like, oh, that shame. I don't think I have shame. But you know what? I guarantee you, any of you boys, I get a group of boys together in a room and you know, being vulnerable is like pulling teeth and it's not a strength. It's because you're weak. It's because you're too fearful, you're too weak to actually have the strength to deal with the things in your life. You pretend, you put a little machismo on it, you pretend like it's actually like a masculine trait, but you're just actually acting like a kid. You don't have the strength to handle it. And so here is, here is God and he's saying, hey, like, come on, come on, just, I know, just tell me what happened. Would you confess it to me? Would you share it with me? Would you let me in? Because the other thing God does is he gets into the mess. He immediately like, they try to fix it themselves. they like, they're so ashamed, right? They jump in, they try to put on, you know, tie fig leaves together, which, boys, it doesn't work very good. You know, like, I mean, you know, I saw some of you guys. Anyway, okay. So, never mind, never mind. No, sorry. No, there's, I, I'm not trying to go. I'm just saying, I've seen how you guys try to tie some of you hunters together. We have stories of some of the things you guys have tried to use as, like, anyway, so it's it's just... I'm digging myself a hole. Somebody help me. <laughs> Somebody get me out of this. Um, the point is, it, was, it, it didn't work very good. And that's about what our righteousness does. It's, it's embarrassing that we would even try, right? Our righteousness before God is embarrassing that we even attempt it. Because it's just, it's just silly. Your sense of self-righteousness, God comes in, he helps. He doesn't, he doesn't just say like, hey, you know, there's consequences to this. You guys broke this relationship, but, but I'm gonna do everything I can to help you. So he helps them out. He gives, he gives them a much better uh, covering. But then he gives them this promise. He gives them this hope for the future. In Genesis 3.15, it's often called the proto It's the literally means the first gospel. And it's where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your heel and you will strike his heel. You know, I remember some of you guys, if you grew up in the country at all, you probably get this analogy real well because I remember walking along in, in the country one time with a buddy and we were walking through this old dump um, outside this farm, uh, outside Hermiston, Oregon. And, and we were walking along and there was this pallet, pile of pallets and we jumped on this pile of pallets and we were walking along. And, and all of a sudden, underneath our feet, we, we heard this tsh, tsh. The rattlesnake was literally right under our feet. Couldn't see it because the pallets, you know, if you know, like pallets kind of divided and there was just dark, we couldn't see it under there. But like instantly, like we just like, we couldn't see it so our instinct was to jump and run, right? But that thing just about struck us on the heel, right? That's where a snake will bite, is right there where it's closest. But... But if we didn't jump and run, the other instinct that we would have had was to have, have taken our boot and beat the head down. You don't beat the tail of a snake, that doesn't do anything. You just make it mad and strike you in the heel. You, bat, you, you strike it in the head and it's a death blow. If you get bit by a snake, it may or may not be deadly. It may or may not kill you, but it's not, it's not enough for sure. But if you strike a snake in the head, it's, it's a kind of a death blow. And so here's God, and he's talking about Eve and the snake, and he's not talking about her or her kids or necessarily the kids after that, but he's just saying, hey, down the road, this is coming to a head. This isn't over. The garden story, this hasn't ended yet. We've got more to do. But someday, the snake is gonna strike your descendants' heel and they're gonna strike you in the head. They're gonna end you. And now you see the gospel. Because God would come, you know, here's Genesis 3, you know, the meta-narrative of Scripture from the very beginning, long before anybody ever heard the name of Jesus or ever thought of that concept and when long before, you know, Jews had any idea of the Trinity or anything like that, there, there was this promise that someday God was gonna make a way and God just suddenly says, hey, I'm coming. I'm not just gonna help you from afar, I'm coming into the mess that you made. And I am going to do war with the snake. Of course, it's not talking about the seed of the snake like snakes that are like you know rattlesnakes or something. He's, he's talking about the descendants of what happened in the garden, the representation of that. And here comes Christ, and on the cross they would they would pierce his arms and they would pierce his leg, and they would put him on a cross, and it would kill him because of your. Sin, the Bible calls it, rejecting the relationship with God, your creator. But he would come back, he would overcome that sin, he would overcome that death, and through it, he would strike the head of that snake and he would overcome the power of that, that snake, the shame that that snake gave, the disconnection between God and man that that snake created, the reality that that snake created, he was gonna undo. And it says in the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, like I am overcoming, I am advancing the garden, I'm bringing the garden back. So the question tonight is just, have you let God bring the garden back into your own life? That's true even for some of you Christians who are like, yeah, there's places where God's not really transformed that part of my life. Maybe he hasn't observed that part of my life in the way that he needs to, Maybe, maybe I'm like that, woman in, Matthew, in Mark chapter five, like, I'm suffering. And I believe God can, but am I going up to the hem of his garment, am I grabbing hold of him in desperation saying, I need you? Is that you tonight? And so we're just gonna, we're just gonna wrap up real simply tonight. Um, but I'm gonna invite you guys to get together. If you've got small group guys or girls that came with you, get together with them. If you got a cohort or just other friends, get together with a few. Not a lot, but just get, get together for a few minutes with some other friends around you. And I just wanna invite you guys to spend a little time and just be vulnerable with each other. Some of you need to confess some things, and I wanna give you an opportunity to do that. Some of you just need to be vulnerable and say, hey, this is, this is the battle in my life. This is where I feel the temptation uh, of the enemy. This is where, I don't know if I've let God observe this part of my life and I'm, I'm needing to like surrender it, but I'm scared of what he might do and how he might transform it. But I just wanted to give you time. If you don't have anything, that's okay. Pray for your friends, but I wanna just give you space for a little bit here. We'll put on some music, and, but just get together with a few friends around you. And I want to you just you invite you to, to express that sense of vulnerability tonight, if you would, and say, God, I need you. But to do that, I need my brothers, and I need my sisters, and I need other people, because I can't do it alone. Even if I could, I shouldn't, because God is a relational God, inviting us into a relationship with him and through that with each other. That our relationship with each other become transformed as we pursue him more intimately, and more closely. That's why we talk about responsibility as like miracle girl for our faith. It's like when I start to say, hey, God, In the garden, there was even mission. In the garden, it was like, hey, God's like, hey, let's make our friendship about advancing this garden in the world. And through that, we'll draw closer to each other. When we have friends who aren't Christians, that's that's why, this is not some kind of organizational religious duty to say, hey, I want you to become a Christian. It's a relational longing. It's a love command. Say, hey, I wanna be close to you. I wanna be more your friend. I wanna be more your brother. I wanna be more more than what we are, and that is gonna only come if what makes me tick becomes what makes you tick too. If we could lean on each other, I believe we could journey together and we could draw closer to our God and our Creator's results. We could transform our lives as we transform through connecting to one another. We have a relational God inviting us into a relationship with him. So some of you might just need to say, God, I'm ready, I need to give you I need to let you observe me, I need to let you collapse the chaos that I've created in my life and let you transform it. And if that's you today, I just wanna invite you to do that with your friends. Not to me, not to random strangers, but to the people around you that you love, and that love you, because they love God. And the Bible, the narrative of the fall is a beautiful one because it's a narrative that says, Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much love much. The world's response to shame is to say, well, you're just good, you're fine, everything's good. I was talking with an administrator here at CSU recently and and talking with them. I, kind of, I got to share the gospel and and we were talking about some of the things happening and the struggles on our campus and some of the struggles with this generation and and, and I got to share how the, how the gospel has so many tools and so many answers for how this, the pandemic of your generation. So many of you guys are wrestling with anxiety. Let me tell you, that's not normal. Not in the way that you're experiencing it in your generation. It's normal to your generation. It's not normal to your humanity. God wants to transform that. Some of you are experiencing depression. God wants to transform that. That's not, that doesn't have to be your reality. But you have to let him transform it. You have to let him observe it. You have to let him in. So you guys, and, and I was talking with him and at the end he was just like, oh, that's so good. Yeah, as long as, you know, As long as people realize we're all okay, like that's not at all what I said. (laughs) But but the world wants to water it down. It's like, hey, you're not bad. You're good. You're fine. You're great. You know what that means? It just means that there is no morality in your life. When we realize, man, there is a standard. There is right. There is wrong. There is good. There is evil in this world. Guess what, I've been on the wrong side of that equation too many times. We can suddenly say, God, thank you. And forgiveness leads us into love. Where the, tre- where the garden story of our shame pulled us from God, it's his redemption on the cross that uses the very thing that pulled us from him as the greatest expression of drawing us close to him. His forgiveness would become the means of our, you know, those who are forgiven much love much. So some of us maybe just need to ask for forgiveness tonight and do that, do that with some friends. So we am going to get some worship going just get together, guys, for a little bit. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. I know we could go all night, and but I want to just give us 10 minutes or more, and I'll get come back up and close us out. But go ahead and get together and, and just spend some time just saying, hey, this is the struggle in my life right now. This is how I need you. This is why I need you.